I'll invite you to turn with me. Whoop. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, as we continue the Sermon on the Mount, we reach what has been called the unbeliever's favorite verse in uh, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7. You'll see why. We're going to read through to verse 6, and, uh, and we're going to cover that in our time this morning. So let's just begin by reading Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So as we consider where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has laid out for us the standard of righteousness that his people are to pursue. Uh, we, we do this not so as to earn our redemption or earn entrance into the kingdom of God, but because God has been gracious to us and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God. And as his people now, we are those whom God himself is making more righteous, being made into the image of Christ. And Jesus has been explaining what this looks like as he has described true righteousness for us. Uh, we have seen that uh, we are those who are to hunger and thirst for this righteousness. Uh, we have um, also seen that righteousness is nothing less than the very moral perfection of God himself. We saw that at the very end of, of chapter 5 where that uh, section climaxes. And then in beginning of 6, Jesus started to, sh to address the matter of how it is that we are to practice this righteousness. Uh, not by way of man-pleasing, trying to do it to please others, uh, but rather we are those who live our lives consciously before the presence of God, and God thereby rewards things that are done in secret, where nobody else sees it or knows it. Uh, so we're not doing acts of righteousness to make ourselves look good or so others might see us, but uh, simply we, we live our lives in, in all ways uh, to the glory of God ultimately, to, to please him knowing that he is ultimately the audience that we are concerned with. Christ has taught us uh, of the Father's care for us. Uh, so we are not those who are worried to be worried about all of our earthly needs and so on. We don't live for those things, uh, simply to accumulate those things, nor are we even to worry about those things when we're not sure where they're going to come from next or if they'll even be there tomorrow. Rather, Jesus has told us, reminded us, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is, this is the priority for his people, for kingdom people. We lay up treasures in heaven. And so given all of this, given this very, very high standard of righteousness that Jesus has laid out for us, that we are to be concerned with and to be pursuing, and given our calling to uh, not live for this world and to be engaged in all of the things that the unbelieving world around us is, uh, another issue will naturally arise 
And that is, how do we interact with sinners? Uh, What is our posture to be with those who not only fail to live up to this standard, but who may not even care in the slightest about it? They don't even like this standard. They want nothing to do with it. They despise it, perhaps even. Obviously, we encounter this as we live in an unbelieving and ungodly world. But we also deal with the sins of one another in the church as well. We deal with the sins of others who are indeed concerned about matters of righteousness, but uh, who among us is without sin? None of us. And so it's inescapable that we will have to deal with the sins of other people, whether we're talking the unbelieving world outside of the church or whether we're even talking about our brothers and sisters within. This is important and and, and really critical that we think about this matter as Christians, how to respond, what our attitude is to be towards the sins of others because it is simply inescapable. And thankfully and mercifully, Throughout the Word of God, we do have direction and instruction from our Lord about how to approach this, and we find that in our text this morning. And so the first thing I want to draw our attention to as we think about living in a world of sinners is that you are to avoid possessing a judgmental spirit. You are to avoid possessing a judgmental spirit. It's easy to see how this can happen. We know what's righteous. Jesus has told us what is righteous. We are concerned and we are serious about matters of righteousness and we see others who perhaps are not or not in the way we think they should be and we can easily become judgmental and overly critical about it. There's a temptation toward arrogance. And so Jesus is correcting this. He says in verse one, judge not that you be not judged. So if you just take that verse simply on its own, It might seem like an absolute prohibition against any and all forms of judgment. And this is precisely why people love to throw this at you. That the unbelieving world likes this verse and likes to quote it. You have no business saying that what I'm doing is sinful and wrong. After all, judge not, lest you be judged. But such an understanding of this verse is and it is. It's nonsense, and it's nonsense for a number of reasons. First of all, the way that is typically thrown back at believers is in itself a form of judgment. This very statement, judge not lest you be judged, is a judgment. It's telling us there's something we ought not to do. That's a form of judgment. If you're guilty of this, then Jesus is telling you you're wrong. Moreover, To take it as an absolute prohibition against all judgment demands, of course, paying no attention at all to the immediate context of Matthew nor the the scriptures as a whole. The reality is in a world of good and evil, and we are in a world where there is evil and there is good, judgment of some kind is unavoidable and it's necessary. In fact, it's good to do. By teaching us about righteousness, what it is and what it is not. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself is distinguishing between good and evil. He's making judgments. In our passage today that we've already read that we'll get to, he once again is going to address people as hypocrites. You hypocrites. 
Well, that's obviously a judgment. Moreover, in verse 6, he's going to refer to some people as dogs and pigs. So making distinctions, forming opinions, making judgments, these are unavoidable realities. Uh, we all, I trust, desire to live in a just society. Well, for that to happen, it's going to uh, demand judgments being made. We want judges to make good and just judgments in society. Romans 13 tells us that's the, one of the primary roles of the state is to do that very thing. It's a good thing. So then the question, of course, is what does this mean when Jesus says, judge not? Obviously, there is some kind of judgment that he's telling us not to do. There's a type of judgment that is wrong. And so what is this? What Jesus is condemning here is the tendency to be overly harsh or severely critical fault finders. Uh, almost every commentary I looked at, going back many, many years to newer ones, used the word censorious. It's not a word we use a whole lot, but it's the idea of being overly critical, being harsh in our judgments of others. This is going beyond genuine concern here about righteousness and concern for individuals. And it is instead delighting in being the judge and passing the sentence. Again, it's being severe, condemnatory, and harsh. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that it is the sort of, uh, this sort of judgment that's being condemned here is that which springs forth from self-righteousness. Another commentator mentioned it's, it's a, it can be a status by negation. I feel better about myself when I condemn these people over here who, thank God, I'm not like. I'm much better than them. It is what uh, we see in the parable Jesus told in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee is praying to God and he addresses God and says, I thank you, God, that I am not like this, not like other men, sinners, like this here tax collector. How is he not like them? Well, I give, right? I, I fast twice, twice a week. He gives, he's a good man. He's a great man. Yet at the end of that story, Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes away justified because he just knows he's a sinner, confesses it, pleads for mercy and receives it. Whereas the Pharisee was self-righteous and it resulted and manifested itself in this harsh criticism of this other individual whom ultimately he didn't really know the status of his heart, did he? So it is a harsh and hypocritical type of judgment. That's perhaps not self-aware of one's own sin and applying a double standard. I think this becomes clear as we consider the reason attached to this statement to not judge that Jesus gives us. So he says, judge not that or so that, in order that you be not judged for, so here's a reason, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, whatever judgment against you, Jesus is talking about here, and we'll get to that in a moment. It's clear that what's at issue here is the way in which you judge, right? The measure you use will be used against you. Harsh critical, overbearing, fault-finding, then that's the way it's going to be done to you. You should expect the same thing in return. So Jesus is saying. So again, it's talking about being judgmental. The, 
the way in which you judge as harsh and excessive. That's what Jesus is condemning. I think this is also indicating to us it is the kind of judging that is using a standard that you and I would not want applied to us. Right? We'll be exacting and overly critical with other people, but we also then simultaneously demand everybody else think the best of me and my motives. Right? Deal very kindly and softly with me, but I'll be harsh with everybody else. Again, the person... As Jesus is saying this, the measure you use, it will be used to you. It is assumed you don't want that harsh kind of measurement used against you. Now, I think what Jesus is communicating to us here is that this kind of judgmentalism is not ultimately a Christian characteristic. We've seen in the Sermon on the Mount many descriptors of the Christian and of the Christian's attitude, of the Christian's attitude towards other people. Blessed are the merciful, for example. And this attitude of harsh toward others in our judgments is not a characteristic of a Christian, of the Spirit of God residing in someone. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. Now, there are different understandings of what it is Jesus is referring to when he's talking here about a judgment against you. Judge not, lest you be judged, and this measure that others are, that someone else is using against you. What is this referring to? Well, some people say that this is really just talking to other people and their treatment of you. Uh, so he's saying here and warning you that if you're a harsh person with other people, then other person are going to turn around and they're going to be harsh with you. Certainly that's true, but I think that it is better to understand this as referring to God and God's judgment of you. So when true Christians sin in this way in overly harsh criticism of others, I say true Christians, those who are no longer under God's eternal judgment, under God's wrathful condemnation, when we sin in this way, we ought to expect from God discipline for this. We could call that rightly a temporal judgment. It's not an eternal judgment, but a temporal one. It's God's discipline. If this is sin, God is committed to sanctifying his people, then we ought to expect a form of judgment for us, against us, if we are going to treat people this way. Because God is going to purge this of you and purify you of this, reveal this to you, discipline you. And often he does use the means of other people who will treat you very harshly in return. And so God chastises his people when we become harsh. And I think this calls us to repentance. And we ought to take from this as well that if others are, if, if those who profess the name of Christ are unrepentantly just harsh critics of others, engaged just with a continual critical spirit, then just as with other sins, unrepentant sins, then I think this ought to make such a person question whether they have indeed been born, of, born again, born of God. So it is similar to what we saw back in chapter 6 in verses 14 and 15. There we saw that the unforgiving person should not have any confidence that they themselves are indeed forgiven by God. 
Right? The, the, the Christian is one who has experienced tremendous mercy and forgiveness from God for vast, uncalculable numbers of sins that we have committed against Almighty God, worthy of the fires of hell, forgiven, wiped clean. That is what we claim as Christians. For believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died to satisfy God's wrath against us for those sins we have committed. And so if we then live as just unforgiving people around others, it doesn't compute, it doesn't fit with what we claim the gospel is, a message of free grace to sinful people. And so likewise it is with the one who is overly harsh and judgmental with others, that they should not expect to escape the exacting judgment, the perfect judgment of God Almighty. Again, Christians are those who've been forgiven much, and so we forgive much. We gladly forgive. We look forward to forgiving and pardoning others. We are those who have received and will yet receive much mercy and kindness from God, who has been patient with us in our many sins. And so we look out upon others, including the sinful world around us, those close to us, and we are merciful people. We are to be long-suffering. We are those who know charity and have this disposition towards sinners, toward other sins around us. Now, admittedly, as we think about being overly harsh, excessively critical. It's difficult to know and say for sure when exactly that line gets crossed. When exactly you move from a true judgment to becoming overly harsh and critical. To when you cross that line to now be, you're a fault finder. I think it's important that we are not those who assume that anyone who stands firmly on a matter of sin on a matter to do with righteousness, we should not assume that such a person is judgmental. Someone may not be moved from their position. That doesn't mean they're necessarily harsh and judgmental. If you consider Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's rather unrelenting in his words. He's not really soft-pedaling things either, is he? He's going to go on, well, we'll see in a bit, talk of dogs and pigs, He's going to talk about false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Not just wolves, not just better, they're ravenous wolves, he says. So you must not, we must be careful not to let our world's definition of judgmental be our definition of judgmental. The world will say any disagreement is judgmental. The world will say, you, unless you approve of what I'm doing and support me in what I'm doing, then you are being judgmental. And we must not buy that. That is not what this is saying. We, we stand firm. They'll call you judgmental, and we're going to have to learn to just understand before God that's not true. We seek a clear conscience before God. Nevertheless, it's clear, or Jesus would not be teaching this, that there is a line that gets crossed and so it's important that each man, each woman, that you would search yourself in these matters before the Lord, honestly. And let us understand that being judgmental, being harsh, 
overly harsh and excessively critical. This is indeed sinful. It is sin to be repented of and to be warred against. Remember in your battle with this, your own sinfulness, despite the fact that you even know better. Where the book of Romans talks about the Gentiles who sin and suppress the truth and unrighteousness and it's just all manner of wickedness. And then Paul turns and speaks of the Jews. And the, the underlying excuse being used there is, well, we know what's right and wrong. And he says, yes, you do, but you don't do what is right. And there's a sense in which that's far worse. So we just need to be honest about our own position, our own sinfulness still. Even as those who know right and wrong, perhaps better than our neighbors. Despite however many years you've been a Christian. And this ought to work in us a humility that we then operate out of as we live in this world. And let's praise God. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness for being harsh with others. There is forgiveness for the judgmental person. There's forgiveness for the self-righteous person who acknowledges this before God. Christ died for all manner of sins. He died for judgmental people too. So you are to avoid possessing a judgmental spirit. Secondly, when dealing with the sins of others, you are to correct fellow believers in self-aware humility. You are to correct fellow believers in self-aware humility. Verses 1 and 2 are somewhat general. Our attitude is not to be a judgmental and harsh one as we consider life amongst sinners in general. But now the focus narrows a little bit to talk about our brothers and sisters when they sin, our fellow believers. Verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the step out of your brother's eye. Jesus uses a metaphor here to instruct us on how to deal with the sins of our brothers and sisters around us. So I understand when Jesus is talking about your brother here to be referring specifically to fellow Christians. This is the normal use of that term in Matthew and throughout the New Testament. Obviously, we could say this process uh, could apply if your workplace with unbelievers as well, uh, before being overly harsh with them about mistakes or errors, going to them with a measure of humility. I think that's this, this would apply. But Jesus is specifically talking about believers dealing with one another in the church. And the metaphor given here sets up an absurdity, really, if you try to picture this reality. It pictures a man who is concerned, greatly concerned, about a speck that he finds in his brother's eye, a small piece of chaff or sawdust. This is a big problem. I can see this. This needs dealing with. And he wants to address it. And yet, he has an entire beam of wood in his own eye. And he's unaware of it. But he's so, so completely oblivious that he doesn't even realize he's got this ginorm ginormous beam in his own eye. Right? This is an obvious absurdity, Jesus is saying. 
He calls it hypocritical, Jesus does, to be that oblivious when trying to address someone else's issue. The man who's concerned about the speck has a bigger problem and he's completely unaware of it. Again, the illustration reveals a man with a hypocritical double standard. He's eager to deal with this small issue. He's found a fault. He's a big problem. I need to deal with this. But he does not apply that same standard to himself first. How do we know that? Because he's got this giant beam in his eye. It's the kind of judgmentalism that I think we see in David. After David sinned with Bathsheba, and you remember the prophet Nathan went to David, and he presents this scenario about this man who stole some lambs, a rich man who had a bunch, but he stole from the sun, and David's outraged. He's infuriated. Where is this man? He deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. And this is us with our sin. When we go to correct somebody without dealing with the sin in our own heart, in our own lives. When we do not go with a, a self-aware humility to our brothers and sisters. We are to be those who deal honestly with God about our own beams, the logs in our own eyes, our own mountains of sin. Those seeking to mortify it. Those with one standard, God's standard, that we, to the best of our ability, apply to ourselves in addition to others. God is the judge. His standard is what matters, and it leaves us condemned too. We apply His standard to our own selves first, and this will and does change our attitude when we find sin in our brothers and sisters around us. and how we would deal with it. Notice, it doesn't say, because you have a beam in your own eye, don't even address the speck in your brother's eye. It doesn't say that. Many take it this way. Many take the attitude, well, you know, I'm a sinner, really sinful. Who am I to even say anything to anybody around me? Right? I have lots of sin, and so then we just don't address sin in other people within our church, friends, brothers and sisters. Who am I to say anything? But that's not what Jesus is telling us to do here. He says to remove the log, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That speck in the brother's eye is still an issue. It's still right to address it, to help him. But Jesus is saying, don't do this in a hypocritical and harsh manner. Honesty in dealing with your own sins before God will give you the necessary clarity and the necessary spirit to help a fellow brother or sister with their sin. We would go then as a fellow sinner, not going as the judge, jury, executioner in a hypocritical display of self-righteousness. We see in a number of places in Scripture where we are told to help brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. Matthew 18 comes to mind, but there are others. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. 
It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you see the parallels to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7? That helping others caught in sin is commanded in Galatians 6.1. But also the focus is going in humility. In a spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself lest you also be tempted. There's humility in that. Again, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. If you're unaware of that log in your eye as you go to, to try to help others... You're deceiving yourself. James 5.19 says, My brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It is good to go to one who is wandering and seek to restore them, to help them see their sin and bring them back. What Jesus is condemning what is condemned in Galatians 6, obviously as well, is doing that with a harshness and hypocrisy. And let me just give a quick word for those being rebuked. If you ever find yourself in a position where one is coming to you to, to, because they see a sin in you, I think it is likewise important to receive that with humility. Perhaps that person came to you in a way that you say, that could have maybe been done with a little more grace or a little more humility. That was maybe a little more harsh than it needed to be. That may very well be true, but don't let that cloud the issue of sin in your life. Again, seek a humility that if someone came to you and it is maybe harsh objectively, but you would still want to hear the criticism because it might still be true. Right, to have the attitude David mentioned in Psalm 141.5, he says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Now, David is not saying it's really good if a righteous man comes up and just nails me. But he's saying even if he's doing that rather harsh treatment, but because he sees error and he is actually a righteous man, let me not refuse it. It is good for me to receive the critique. So we don't just throw out every concern if, we ha if it doesn't quite meet the standard we might have for what would be a gracious confrontation. It's not an excuse to go ungraciously, but let's not write it off immediately in the church we do have to deal with the sins of brothers and sisters and the bible has told us how we are to handle this and with what spirit it is that we are to engage in the matter again i think of the parable of the unmerciful servant it reminds us that we are those with extraordinarily large debts that god has wiped clean that christ has paid for on the cross 
And this necessarily changes how we would view others and their sins, even their sins that are committed directly against us. There is to be a certain measure of humility as we deal with the sins of others, especially our fellow blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we admonish, and we do admonish, but when we do, we are to do so with a self-aware humility and not with a hypocritical double standard. The third thing I want to point out here as we consider life amongst sinners is that you are to exercise wisdom when dealing with hardened sinners. You are to exercise wisdom when dealing with hardened sinners. We might call this point, know when to walk away. Jesus moves on here from dealing with brothers and sisters, fellow believers, to a different type of person. Those that he calls dogs and pigs. So verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In case anyone thinks that Jesus is promoting in his people a naive view of the world or a soft view of the truly horrific realities of sin, I think this verse reveals otherwise. We are certainly not to be filled with a harsh, judgmental spirit. But this doesn't mean, again, that we simply don't make judgments. That we are just to be naive people. We are those who know, who ought to know, man's capacity for great wickedness and evil. We are those with eyes wide open to this reality and possibility of the great evil man can commit. And we are those who in this world are seeking to act with wisdom amongst hardened sinners. So as we think about verse 6, we have to figure out what dogs and pigs refers to and what it is that Jesus refers to when he talks about what is holy and pearls. So dogs. Dogs were not pets. Uh, they, they were not cute puppies that you buy and treat as a family member in, in Jesus' day. Dogs were wild animals. They were despised. They were scavengers. They could be dangerous. Pigs, they were unclean animals, filthy animals. They represented all that is unclean and filthy and so for Jews, both dogs and pigs were associated with Gentiles, with pagan unbelievers. And we see this elsewhere, even in the New Testament. Now, I don't think what Jesus is, I don't think Jesus is referring to all Gentiles when he talks about dogs and pigs here, here but, and, and I'll, for reasons I'll mention in a moment. Now, in terms of what he means by when he says, what is holy, don't give that to the dogs, or, or pearls, this is most likely, this is how the vast majority of commentators take it, and I, and, and I think it's correct. It refers to the message of the gospel itself, the kingdom of God. The 
preaching of the gospel, instructing about the kingdom of God. Now, if we think about that, so if the, if the pigs and dogs represent Gentiles and the, what is holy and the pearls represent the gospel, then it's, it might seem that Jesus is saying, don't preach the gospel to Gentiles. But if that's what he's saying, then we would have a very, very significant problem. It would be inconsistent with the book of Matthew itself and certainly the entirety of the scriptures in the New Testament. Right? We know at the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 28, we have the Great Commission in which the disciples are told to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That word nation is the word for Gentiles. Go make disciples of the Gentile nations. And there's other places in Matthew as well where Jesus is clear that Gentiles will be added to the fold. And so he's not saying dogs and, 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 and pigs or just mean don't take the gospel to any Gentiles at all. Rather, it's better to understand dogs and pigs here to refer to those among the unbelieving world who remain hardened in their sin and opposition to the gospel. So the instruction here is to recognize that there is a time to stop speaking these words when the only intention of these people is to trample them to blaspheme, to ridicule, and possibly then turn and attack you, as Jesus says here. I believe what Jesus is saying is that there is a time when you may face such people where you are to hold your tongue, to walk away, and to move on. And if we think this is odd, we do actually find this in the New Testament. So, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're preaching in Pisidian Antioch. And they go, they're preaching Christ. But then in response to that, a number of the Jews stir up opposition, creating problems and persecution for Paul and for Barnabas. And it says in verse 46 of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, namely the Jews of the city. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. They've preached. There's this hardened response, a doubling down. We're going to now persecute you. And he says, we're turning then. Our, our hands are clean. The blood is not on our hands. It's on you. And now we're going to move on to the others and preach to them since you are just going to respond in this way. In Acts 18, verse 6, we see Paul shake out his garment when there the Jews opposed and reviled him, saying, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He stops casting his pearls before the swine. He takes them and he goes to others. I think we see a similar thing in Jesus even. For example, in Luke 23, he's faced with Herod. He's brought before Herod. At his so-called trial, you remember, it's a show. Herod saw Jesus. He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Why? Because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some, some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. Herod wants to see something cool. He wants to see something great. So he's very pleased that Pilate has sent Jesus to him. 
Listen, though, it says, but he, Jesus, made no answer. He's questioned at length, makes no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by him, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. It's a spectacle. Herod wants a show. And Jesus decides in this moment to say nothing. Again, he does not give to dogs what is holy. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, verse 6 here, is also, I think, basically what we find him say later in Matthew, in chapter 10, and verse 16. You can flip there if you want, just a couple of verses. Matthew 10, 16. There Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He's saying, be careful. Beware of men. So I I don't think that being a Christian means that you must always walk headlong into martyrdom. We do see at times Christians in the New Testament even fleeing, leaving Jerusalem even, because it was no longer safe there for them. There were swine, if you will, there. There were dogs that would turn and attack them if they just simply stayed there. And I think they're obeying the Lord's commands. They're being wise in this moment. They're being careful. And there in this instance, at least, many of them decided to leave, though not all of them, but many did. We are to exercise care and wisdom as we go about our mission, knowing that we are indeed amongst wolves. We should not be naive. Again, this is not always easy to know when exactly to do this, when exactly to hold our tongue, when to stop, when to move on. What exactly does wisdom mean when, as we live among wolves? That's not always a, a real simple answer. I, th- I trust we understand this. And I think we ought also to be clear that Jesus is not saying that we are to prioritize self-preservation above all else. That we are to prioritize self-preservation above the gospel itself and above the mission at, our mission as a church. We think of many heroes throughout the ages who went into tribes that were and and people groups where all accounts were this is going to be hostile and very difficult and some of whom gave their lives seeking to go bring the gospel and we honor such men and women who did that But I don't think we should conclude that those who didn't go with them were necessarily cowards or somehow unfaithful to Christ. Even the Matthew 10 passage I just read about sheep among wolves, it assumes that even as we seek to exercise wisdom and care, we will get hauled before kings and governors. And Jesus says we would then have opportunity to testify We would speak in those cases, he says. 
So I don't think Jesus is calling us to only open our mouths to share the gospel after we are very, very confident that it's going to be well-received. I don't think that's what he's saying. And I think that is an error we could fall into. We try to prejudge what a person may or may not think of what I say, and then I'm just maybe not going to say anything at all. We know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. That includes even men like the Apostle Paul himself, who was a persecutor of the church. Moreover, if you think about the examples I read from Acts about the Apostle Paul, he was not waiting around to find out who is a person of peace or whatever language is used, and then we're just going to speak to them the gospel. Rather, he went and he just started to preach. He started to share this good news with people. And when, then when he was faced with this response by hardened sinners who refused the gospel and then were turning to persecute him, then we see him at times then washing his hands of it. Your blood is on your shoulder. I've made this clear and now I'm moving on to others. Of course, we know there are other times Paul was arrested before he had a chance to move on. So I would suggest that this is a call for wisdom, a call to to use discretion in the face of proven obstinacy to the gospel and to the things of the Lord. Where the gospel has been made known, and yet now I'm going to stop casting pearls before swine here and focus elsewhere. We move on. I don't think this is simple to to apply, but as I think about applying this, I think of a couple of situations, scenarios. I think of a family member or a close friend with whom you've shared the gospel. There may come a time to just leave it be. Or maybe you could even say to them, we've had this conversation, I've shared this with you, none of this has changed. You oppose this, you disagree. I'm not going to continue to lay this before you, to ridicule or, or to constantly get in this fight and an argument with you. And maybe there is a time to move on your focus to other people in preaching the gospel. Continue to pray for them. Let them know you're there. For them. You want to talk about this. Further, as I think about applying this, I, I don't believe we should apply this just to society as a whole, such that we would just stop evangelizing altogether. If we think about our society, our country, as a whole, we see a ton of opposition to the things of the Lord. Someone speaks up for what is true, what is in accordance with righteousness. We see a ton of opposition, despising, the suppression about the truth of God and unrighteousness. And yet we also know that there are many, many individuals, private individuals, public figures, many people, who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, which again is the power of God unto salvation. So 
I don't think this is saying, look, it's an evil time, therefore we just stop evangelizing. Although there may be specific individuals that we may move on from and that we may need to be wary of. I also think about believers around the world, even right now, who live under incredibly oppressive regimes and, gov- and governing authorities, whether it's in the Middle East or China or North Korea, or I'm sure there's many other places I'm not aware of. And I think this would call to believers in such places to use wisdom, to be careful. I think they have... have to think carefully about evangelism in those places. You know, would we really conclude that they have to go preach on the street corner under Taliban rule in order to really be a faithful evangelist? You know, a place where it's pretty certain you're going to get arrested, maybe killed if you do that. I think this authorizes a a carefulness that that one doesn't have to walk headlong into that. I don't think that means that Christians in places like Afghanistan or other places have no concern about the Great Commission or about evangelizing others. I don't think anyone who's a Christian in such a place would take that view. But I think they are to engage carefully. Seek to use wisdom. That they needn't all rush headlong into certain death and persecution. And so I think this is clear here that there are times to walk away. And that we are to exercise wisdom when we deal with hardened sinners who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, I think this becomes clear after the gospel has been shared and then it is rejected Firmly so. So again, the reality is we live in a fallen world. We will have to deal with the sins of other people in various ways. We are to come at this avoiding a judgmental spirit in which we are harsh and excessively critical. We remember, of course, that our Lord was hated. And he told us if they hated him, they'll hate us as well. And so it ought to grieve us and be painful and difficult to see wickedness around us, but to still not justify being excessively harsh and critical people. We can and should speak the truth of what God's word says about a matter. We don't need to be unashamed of that which God says is good. But again, let us be those who make it known that ultimately it is God who is the judge. We are seeking to communicate what he says, what he declares, what his verdict is. And of course, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are one who has been forgiven an enormous debt. And let that work humility in your heart as you think about 
living in this world of sinfulness. And when we deal with one another inside the church, clearly Christ calls us to do so in humility, with self-awareness, dealing with the sins in our own lives, confessing those honestly, applying the same standards. And when it comes to the hardened sinners of the world, we are those who are to exercise caution and wisdom even as we seek to make the gospel known. The good news that Jesus Christ has died for sinners. That there is forgiveness of sins for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, even the very worst of sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We are reminded once again that we fall short of your glory. Forgive us where we have been severely critical and harsh. Father, we know this is not something that it just comes out in our words, but it can be our attitudes, it can be in our thoughts, it can be in our disposition towards others. Father, I pray that you would increase compassion in our hearts as we consider our lost world that we would be willing and prepared to risk being persecuted to bring good news to sinners. Give us wisdom as we are sheep among wolves to remain innocent and yet to be careful. Help us to know when to hold our peace, when to stop throwing pearls before swine. Father, it's grievous that ever somebody would be in such a situation. And yet, if it were not for your grace, we would be right there trampling pearls as well. Father, keep us from all pride. Forgive us for arrogance. Give us increased love for one another. Increased love for you and trust in you that you will indeed Complete the work you have begun in your people. We long for that day when we will be forever with you in glorified bodies, with all of your redeemed, beholding you face to face as your word declares and as you promise to all who are in Christ. Encourage us, strengthen us, give us joy as we go from this place. Father, help us to have our joy tied to the kingdom of God that even should we suffer, we would not be out of joint, that our noses would not be out of joint, that we would not be upset and angry, but that we would be able to receive any persecution that would come our way, knowing that they persecuted Christ first, that we'd be able to rejoice being counted worthy to suffer for the name. Give us eternal mindsets. Father, help us as we go from this place. We do pray that you would draw many of our neighbors and friends towards you, to you, in saving faith. That you would show tremendous kindness to our neighbors, our loved ones, our friends. Father, we think of those for whom the, the conversation about these eternal truths where the, the door is shut. 
for whatever reason. Father, we pray that you would yet show mercy. We know that you do save hardened sinners and we pray that you would cause the seeds that have been sown to yet take root. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that we can rest in your sovereignty and in your goodness. So we just ask you for wisdom in these days. We recognize we live in evil days. And yet we also know this is not unique to us. We also know that many who've gone before us and many who live now your, of your people deal with much greater evil and wickedness every day. We pray for strength that you encourage your church all over the world where they're suffering greatly, that your people would have wisdom to hold forth the light of the gospel and yet have wisdom to know how to live in such a world where they suffer greatly. Father, we, we thank you for your goodness to us here. We pray as you've called us to for our leaders and for our nation that we would be able to live our lives quietly, peaceably, in discipline, in the fear of the Lord. Father, that we would be able to not receive gross persecution as a result of seeking to proclaim Christ and live according to your word. Father, above all, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, whatever happens, and that we would release hold of our very lives, that we would count, it as, count them as nothing, that we would just so be so captured and captivated by your kingdom and your righteousness with the grace we have been shown, that we would not fear man, that we would remember that you are a great God and that you are with us and that eternally we are yours, such that man can really do no ultimate harm to us. Help us to believe this. Help our children to believe this. Even as we continue through this day that you have given us and through our week ahead. We ask all these things together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.